0: Hi, everybody. Aaron Noonan here. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Thank you so much for all of your feedback to our last episode. The 2Liter Super Touring uh, Focus episode had a really good response. Thanks, everyone, who got in touch. We'll do another one of those down the track on another category. Uh, If you like the podcast, that's cool. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your favourite podcast, So you don't miss an episode, you can listen to it as well through our v8sleuth.com.au website. Tell all your mates, leave a review. We love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. We'll cop it all. We'll probably ignore the bad bits, but we'll take the good bits, that's for sure. And, and also, uh, we've had amazing response to our new book, Racing the Lion, our 400-page collector's edition. It's the Holden Illustrated Australian Motorsport History Book that features a wide range of amazing Holden imagery. Perfect gift for Christmas, by the way, if you want to get in nice and early and lock that one away. Now, uh, jump on our website, bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au. You'll find other book titles as well. Uh, A range of motorsport DVDs and and posters and prints too. Now, a guy who features prominently in our Racing the Lion Holden book, because he is a prominent man in Holden and its motorsport history, is my guest on the podcast this week, Greg Murphy. Now, the four-time Bathurst 1000 winner is synonymous with the general, but he's done a pile of cool stuff in his motor racing career away from the supercar stuff. And I guess in this podcast, we spent a fair bit of time talking about the non-Commodore supercar things Purely, because no one stopped to ask him for so many years. So on part one of the podcast, I talked to Greg about Formula Brabham Open Wheelers and Super Touring and how his relationship began with Boost Mobile's Peter Addison. We talk about the 1996 New Zealand Mobile Sprints that he won in the Holden Racing Team Commodore that sent him on a, a whole new level of awareness in, in his homeland. Uh, shh, Holden fans, block your ears. We talk about the time that Murph drove the peanut slab Ford Sierra. Holden fans, unblock your ears. You didn't hear what just happened. Uh, We also talk about the, well, interesting test with the Williams British Touring Car Championship Renault Laguna team that didn't quite go anywhere. We also talk about the Bathurst that Murph did with Triple Eight in a Holden, and also his brief run tackling NASCAR racing. Stay tuned for part two as well. We talk about the Spider-Man Kmart Commodore, the famous 2004 Gold Coast press conference with Marcus Ambrose, Winning the 24-hour Bathurst race in the Monaro with Brocky and Todd Kelly and Jason Bright. In the National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions, there are plenty relating to Bathurst 2005, and we get from Murph whether that car that was in that incident with Marcus Ambrose was in fact drivable back to the pit lane. We also cover off the Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout, our fancy form of word association, and Murph, well... He's topped a shootout or two in his time. He handled it pretty well. Now, I chatted to him from home over a Zoom call in recent weeks. So here we go. Buckle up. Time to start part one of Greg Murphy on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Tim Kidd. Well, our listeners have asked. We have answered, and Greg Murphy's answered our Zoom call in New Zealand. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast. It has taken us until episode 509,042 and 48 to get you, but we got there. <laughs> Jeez. Well, you just you never asked earlier. <laughs> well, what I wanted to do was leave enough space, Greg, between your other infrequent podcast appearances, including with our your neighbor down the road, uh, Mr. G Rust. I wanted to leave enough space to just not over the the listenership of podcasts. So. Good, I think it's I think it's I think it's very valid. And if,
1: if I got rid of the uh, uh, background of the K Commodore at Bathurst, you'd actually see Greg Russ' house over my shoulder.
0: <laughs> That's true. I, I know a lot of people don't believe it, but he lives what stone's throw down the road
1: from you in New Zealand. Well, I can't throw stones quite that well, but it's uh, it's, it's not um, it's not that far. I can actually see his upstairs bedroom window from my um, front front uh, lawn.
0: Yeah, that's way terrifying too as that may sound. It's way too early in the podcast to be getting into a bit of that style of, of stuff. Normally, that takes at least an hour. <laughs> but uh, hey, thanks for spending some time. Um, obviously, at the moment, while we're recording this, uh, we're locked down in Melbourne. Uh, you're in NZ. We haven't had you over here, obviously, for the Supercars Championship since albert park because of the the borders and planes and travel restrictions and the like so i guess first question first how you're traveling what's happening in your world are you are you keeping yourself nice and busy
1: Yeah, it's sort of really weird. Um, Yes, I have been quite busy. It's just a different kind of busy because you're you're trying to sort of um, fulfill, uh, you know, obligations over here, which are a little bit difficult as well because of the ins and outs of of the lockdown. I'm trying to sort of do a few things that, um I also wouldn't have had time to do previously and focus on a couple of areas but a road safety stuff has sort of had a bit more time to do a bit of that as well and um, and so that's been good so you know um yeah it, it's it isn't as busy as I'd like it to be for sure but it, it uh, the days are disappearing quite quickly um it's just uh, not a lot of the um, the day is is what I would normally be doing so um you know it, it's incredible to think that we are Towards the end of August though Already at, at, at this point um, I am missing not uh, coming to Australia and, and doing the job And, and working with the uh, the team At Supercars TV And and uh, helping uh, produce that broadcast um, I have been sitting very weirdly on the couch Watching it from home
0: I was going to say This is probably the longest period You've gone without a flight to Australia In what, 20 odd years? Mate, uh, yeah it's the,
1: it's the longest period uh, I have um, had uh, consecutively uh, at home um, without doubt for the last 20 years it, it, uh, it's quite interesting when you start to think about that but it's it is fact because of the schedule um, you know being being attached to motorsport in Australia and, and the supercars championship um, you know you, your schedule is, is what it is and you know it you know pretty much pretty much every October prior to the the next season
0: has Monique had you doing jobs around the house and around the property? Is there anything that you've been getting out of for a couple of years that this has caught up with you on that you've had to do? Uh,
1: She's actually sitting over there listening to that question right now. And the look that
0: that I just got out of the
1: corner of my eye was I better be careful how I answer this. Um, Now in hindsight, sitting here letting her listen to this was not a good
0: idea.
1: (laughs) haven't done as much as what she probably expected I was going to do. Is that a good answer, love? And I just got a... Mm.
0: Not really. Not really. Mm. <laughs> uh, shall we move on for your sake more than mine? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Hey, last week on the podcast, Will Dale and I did a, a special Super Touring episode because we had, we've had we had a lot of um, feedback from the fans who wanted to hear some memories and some thoughts on the era. We watched it. You were a part of it. And, and the two standout moments for me in two-litre history in Australia, if you could pick two, is the Longhurst and Morris punch-up, which got more PR than just about any other motorsport <laughs> thing in the 90s. Yeah. But that, that three-wide fight at Lakeside with you, Brad Jones, Paul Morris. Jones gets a run down the
1: inside. He's got the inside
0: running for the corner linear on the straight. Morris is going to hang in there. This is Morris stays with him, and Murphy says, I want a part of this too." Oh, now one, two, three abreast as they go down the kink. I can't do this. But then Dallas, what about Judge in the center? What can he do? Murphy's gonna win the corner. Oh, that has got to be the hairiest ride I've ever seen down the main street of Lakeside. Three abreast through the king. It's some of the best vision I've ever seen. I get so excited every time I watch it. Give me your memories on how that unfolded, how it came to be and how on earth you all made it out the other side. Well, I think, uh, before I, um, go any further, I mean, Daryl Eastlake's
1: commentary, I don't think it would have been the same without it, would it? I mean, it was just, uh, <laughs> that voice, uh, over the top of, um, that racing, um, is something that, uh, yeah, they go hand in hand for sure. But, um, the Super Touring thing was, was pretty exciting at the time and, and obviously I was uh, very fortunate enough to have been uh, given a slot um, in, uh, with Brad Jones Racing in the Audi, the Oryx Audis, which was uh, due to uh, my mate Peter Addison um, sort of, uh, and the work he was doing at Super Touring. He was a part owner in the championship with Terry Morris and um, obviously absolutely got fully entrenched in that category. And uh, through his work and efforts and connections, there was, um, you know, my uh, tenure there at Brad Jones Racing was all part of that. And uh, so I was pretty lucky to, to get that chance. And so, you know, um, I was in a bit of a hurry, obviously looking for uh, success and wanting to, to do big things in, in, in Australia. And, and, you know, just, you know, I, I knew I was uh, the number two in that team, and, and but I didn't really accept it very well and um and I think you know I sort of rubbed Brad and came up the wrong way pretty quickly pretty early on in the piece and we've had a few laughs um in the past uh or since then I suppose about it all I, I don't know if Brad's fully gotten over it but um I think Kim sort of more so has but it was it was Lakeside was an interesting space the, the, the Audi's worked strangely um In places where you wouldn't have thought that that they were going to be very good, and then places where you really thought they were going to be great, they didn't tend to be as as fast as as what we hoped. But Lakeside that weekend, I mean, the battles were huge. The the battles between uh, Paul, Jeff, Brabham, myself, Brad, and and everybody else, they were pretty epic, and the racing was close, um, very fast and furious. And Lakeside was just one of those places. I mean, far out. I, I have great memories of driving there and. And being terrified most of the time as well because there was no runoff anywhere, but it was just a great racetrack. And uh, that weekend, it was a little bit of a, a difference. Um, I think Brad had had a bit of an upgrade in the old engine engine front. Um, the obviously the four wheel drive and the, and the Quattro, uh, and it was I think it was a bit of a weight penalty that we may have had because of that, and bits and pieces. But it was a full on battle, and he had a little bit of an engine um, upgrade that I didn't have, and the the beamers were very fast, obviously, and. I just I remember sort of driving the absolute wheels off the thing, trying to keep up with the uh, the guys in front. And as it so happened, that race, um, you know, the, we'd been sort of banging banging wheels and all that kind of stuff. And then it got to a point coming down to the uh, onto the front straight there that um, Brad and Paul. Uh, ended up getting side by side and were a bit slow coming onto the, onto the front straight and I just sort of positioned myself and saw an opportunity um, to get a bit of a run and I ended up obviously inside against the, the pit wall but on the outside going through the kink turn one and it was one of those moments it's like oh well we're here now and you know I've got four wheel drive so if I, have, if I have two wheels off the, off the road she'll be right and uh, yeah, it just became one of those um, halo moments for the category, and and uh, yeah, very very memorable as far as um, as far as uh, super touring goes, and and um, it made the made the papers and it made the made the news, and that's what super touring was was all about. And uh, yeah, I just happened to come out the other side of it for uh, on the right side of it for a little while until I was instructed to um, pull over.
0: Now, speaking of uh, the relationship with Bradley and Kimmy, tell me about the day, and I think you've talked about this plenty of times, but because it was Brad Jones racing, not Greg Murphy racing, the deal was that Brad Jones would finish in front. But there was a day at Malala in 1996 when you two were smashing them, one, two, on the way home, he crosses the line and thinks the race is over, but there's one lap to go. So you take the lead and have to virtually jump on the brakes at the end of the race to give him back the win. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Bradley knows how to count. I don't think he still does. Oh, it was pretty
1: funny. I mean, um, there, was a, there was a few moments there that I, I didn't, uh, didn't accept or take too well when it came to team orders. But you're right, it did have BJR on the car. Um, they did own the team and they did pay the bills. Um, so, you know, uh, I think 96, I played the game a little bit better. or was a bit more acceptant of it than what I was in 95. But yes, you're right. Um, we came round one, two to uh, take the white flag. Unfortunately, BJ thought, I think it was a checkered flag and, and backed off and pulled the window net down and started waving to all his fans. And um, I was like, hmm, this is going to be interesting as I swept on by. And uh, he had to obviously uh, go down a couple of gears to get going again, and um, subsequently pulled over on the on coming out of the last corner to let him uh, take his uh, rightful spot there at the front and, and grab another trophy.
0: He was he was quite appreciative of that one and, and a little embarrassed. I reckon he owed you a trophy out of that one, to be honest. <laughs> Before you mentioned um, Peter Addison of course a lot of people who follow the sport now really know him for the Boost Mobile stuff yep. and sponsoring GRM and James Courtney in recent times but where did your path with Pete start way back in the day of course the super touring stuff evolved he was involved with you with trying to get you to America which I want to yep. talk about a bit later but where did that relationship start I've never stopped to to ask the question or, or consider it well it's, it's quite a it's, it's quite a cool story actually and
1: um and it's one of these ones, it's, it's about being in the right place at the right time. Um, so uh, in '94, uh, Kev, my dad, and I and, um, had uh, had a pretty successful sort of season in New Zealand, and it was, a, it was time to make a bit of a decision. And the decision was let's go and do the Australian Drivers' Championship in Australia, or at least do the first round and, and see what happens. So we, we'd met um, uh, Graham Brown and Steve Cramp. Um, who had a a RALT RT21 and we did a bit of a deal with them to come to Australia um, at uh, Sydney Motorsport Park or Eastern Creek back in 94 to do the first round of that championship and it just so happened that we the Australian Drivers Championship was supporting the first ever inaugural um, uh, Australian uh, Super Touring Championship uh, was their first round and so we turned up at the event, um, did our due diligence, did a bit of practice and testing uh, prior to the race meeting, and and subsequently, you know, stuck the old Rolt on pole at Eastern Creek and won the two races of the weekend. Um, and we thought we were, that was all pretty cool and, and great, and, and we're sort of sitting around on Sunday afternoon, going, well, what next? What do we what what from here? Because the bank balance at that point was pretty pretty low, and and uh, Kevin sort of um sold his weirs as much as he could to, to try and raise some cash and and um next minute we're sitting around in the garage there at eastern creek and this bloke walks in and he says uh who's the driver and i'm like oh, I'm, I'm the driver he goes oh g'day my name's peter Addison and uh who are you and what's your story and i sort of gave him a bit of a story told him about this and and he's like okay well um uh do you want to drive a uh, super Tour at the next round at Phillip Island in a few weeks I'm like blah, 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 wh- wh- How does What the what Anyway true to his word we turned up um, A few weeks later and found a little bit more Money and he helped out of course To get the Formula Holden to um, Phillip Island And um, also Turning up there was uh, a Toyota Carina um, that had Been um, intercepted by Peter on its way to New Zealand for Bruce Miles Bruce Miles had bought the car off um, uh, from James Kay, um, or I think probably Roland Dane, I would, yeah. I would say. Park Lane Park Lane. And, um, and it was on its way to New Zealand and Pete intercepted and, and uh, we turned up at, at Phillip Island. And all of a sudden, I'm not driving just one car, I'm driving two, um, a single seater and a touring car on the same weekend. And, and that was the start of our relationship. And from that, that point on, um, you know, Pete was a big, big influential, important part of my uh, career Uh, in the early days in in Australia and also as you said supported um, me trying to to chase my dream in America
0: it's one of those things normally when someone comes into a garage asking where's the driver you're probably thinking you're in trouble and you've you've pissed someone off of course really wrong not someone who's going to set up the next x amount of years of your career
1: yeah that's right exactly right and and you know he's flamboyant and and um you know, very energetic. Uh, just a, you know, a, a very very intriguing businessman. Very smart, clever, and and not afraid of um, going at it. And and uh, you know, he's he's loving the fact that he's now being able to come back and and have an involvement in supercars with with Boost. And you know, he's already contributed a lot to that. And and obviously, yeah, you know, he's uh, had a few rocks thrown at him here and there. But um, at the end of the day. Um, he's only in it for the right reasons and he loves it and, and it,
0: you know, now James is having that opportunity to uh, give a bit of payback He's a bit of a polarising character but I love what he brings, obviously he's yep. he spent a lot of money and backed a lot of people and a lot of racing and cars and teams but um, he brings something that our sport doesn't normally deal well with and that's I think the buzzword is a disruptor and that's what he is self uh, proclaimed in terms of business but that's what he yep. does in motor racing and uh, we're so used to everyone saying the right thing, towing the right line, not saying what they think. When we all might think certain things, but we That's never right. say them. He's the one who goes and says it. We've all got the bullets in the chamber, but he fires them. Yeah, yeah, and and then
1: and then gets knocked for it because. And, but yet, and no one else usually tends to back him up um, uh, when when that happens. But uh, good on him, and, and it's it's, it's as I say we I'm very fortunate that uh, he played a part and, and got involved in motorsport, and and he and uh, his brother. Uh, Mark Adderton and also Matt the other brother but Mark did a lot of racing and super touring too and and was actually a bloody good peddler had, had not as much success as what he deserved because he was actually very fast and and uh, very committed uh, behind the wheel of uh, the the various
0: cars that he got to drive we actually covered a bit of that in the podcast last week I think he drove the the Peugeots the Toyota Camry which there wasn't many of those in the world uh, Honda, Honda Ford. yeah that's right he, Volvo he ended up in the Volvo team there with Jim Richards for a little while yep. uh, late in the period. So uh, he's uh, yeah, he did a bit of pedaling. He'd be good to have a chat to on our podcast one day for a lot of people who probably um, haven't heard or seen him since the the two leader days. But I think moving from Pete's a bit of a natural segue in. You're one of those guys in the sport that people either love or they loathe. There's no one on the fence about you, and that's one of the things that I think we can sit here and talk all day about it's not the same anymore and everyone's too nice and all that sort of stuff but (laughs) you've always been like that mate you've in the 20 plus years i've I've, I've worked with you or knowing you there's no gray you're black or white where did that come from in you you've always been a hard on the sleeve guy where did that develop is that a thing that your dad had is that a thing you developed as a kid where does that come from I don't really know
1: mate to be honest I, I wasn't like that as a kid at all um, you know I, uh, I didn't I wasn't much chopping anything else other than um, karting so you know I wasn't much good at ball sports it was no good at rugby that's why I've got this bloody crooked nose because of rugby and um, and I wasn't just no I was too small to be a, a forward and I was too slow to be a back so I never really found a spot um, didn't have a lot of ball skills in that respect at all but I found karting you and, and it was something that um, did sort of resonate and, and seemed to go pretty good at but yeah, I'm not sh- not so sure about the the short temper, the lack of patience, um, what that developed, because that's certainly not Kev, it's certainly not my mum. Um, it, I don't know, I'm not 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 quite sure where it all developed and why it developed, but I, th- I was just in a hurry and I didn't um, I didn't sort of accept mediocrity from myself in any way, shape or form, and I certainly didn't accept it too much from anyone else, and. And, and I suppose I had pretty strong beliefs in what was right and what was wrong. But as you say, it was no, it was no it was always black and white. It wasn't wasn't grey. Um, spoke it the way I you know uh, believed it should be spoken. But I also knew that I'd worked hard to get where I was. Um, I'd been given opportunities by people, and it was always a bit about pay, paying it back. I suppose in some ways too, because the expectation was always high, and it was always you know. Um, the expectation and people believing in you to give you those chances, I always felt that I needed to make sure that um, I rewarded them with that. Unfortunately, the flip side to it was that um, I sometimes, um, you know, wearing that heart on the sleeve, uh, didn't probably direct the right sort of um, or portray the right uh, kind of appreciative kind of manner in some respects. I always appreciated the opportunities I was given, but I always, always also felt that um you know when it when it didn't go well i wasn't going to pretend it was all great and wonderful i was never going to um you know go uh, smile and say oh well you know let's look forward to the the next one kind of deal it was like well this is the way it is at the moment and it's not good enough or you know we need to do a better job i need to do a better job whatever whatever it was so um i don't know Uh, Yeah, I I don't know where that impatience came from and and the lack of sort of acceptance of of poor performance.
0: Has it flowed onto any of your kids or has it stuck with you?
1: No, it's, uh, it's pretty much with me um, sort of thing. So that's a, it's probably a positive uh, in many respects. I've got a, quite an argumentative um, middle child. He's, uh, he, he should be a lawyer probably um, out of anything because he uh, tends to, to argue black and blue regardless of how poor his, uh, his argument actually is. But um, yeah, the older one, Ronan, no, doesn't, doesn't carry my, uh, my mental genetic makeup, uh, makeup,
0: which is good and bad. It's probably a good thing, actually, all things said. Hey, what, um, uh, along the, the way where you have told it how it is or stood up for yourself or thrown a punch, not literally, but in terms of verbally at someone along the line, did you ever get pulled in a line by a, a team manager or a team owner or a major sponsor along the line who said, hey, no, mate, we don't want any of that or you need to curb it? Is there any particular instances that spring to mind? Um, yeah,
1: uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I mean, I, looking back and, um, and, you know, situations that, yeah, you know, weren't as professional as what they should have been from my point of view, uh, from my doing, I should say, you know, I, I actually wish, um, there had been a bit more ass kicking from some of the, the management, um, to, you know, just to remind me sometimes. And also, um, you know, just, yeah, just, um, uh, I I suppose make me think a little bit differently about the way I was going about it. And, you know, Jeff Gricks was pretty good. Um, There was moments there where, where he certainly uh, did, you know, pull me into line and remind me of, of what was, what was what. And so did John Crennan, which was great. Um, But I probably, it probably required sometimes a little bit more of that kind of, that those actions, you know, and, and, you know, the good days were good, but you know the bad days not so good. And and and, and as I say, some of that was born by the fact, whereas I felt the pressure to to be maybe performing better and, and was hard on myself, which may have come across as being negative towards the team, but it, it wasn't because I, I had, was in great teams with great people that um, that always delivered, um, you know, me some some you know the opportunities, good opportunities. Um, it didn't go quite to plan later in the years, and that was frustrating and hard. But, um, you know, I, I did did have uh, some great people around me and awesome teams
0: for, for a large portion of my career. One of the things, we've been really lucky on this podcast to talk to a lot of uh, Bathurst 1000 winners in, in the last 12 or so months. And I've asked everyone the one question that, well, we're lucky enough we get to talk to you guys and we deal with you all regularly in our motor racing and media worlds and, and away from it as well. But I want to ask everybody, how did winning Bathurst, so for you in, in 96 with Craig Lowndes, when they always say winning Bathurst changes your life, how did winning Bathurst for that first time, forget the subsequent times, they were all good follow-ups, but how did it change your life? Because I've got a little bit of a funny feeling that as, as big as that was, um, the bit that gets forgotten by us on this side of the ditch is what happened a month or so later when you took HRT to New Zealand with car number one and you won the, the, the two-weekend series at Pookie in Wellington where that escalated you even higher and harder in, in your homeland. But just to cover the first part, what did winning Bathurst change in your life then and, and now?
1: Yeah, mate, it, it, it does change pretty much everything because it, it, it um, gives you recognition that – that maybe you didn't know, you didn't have, but but all of a sudden, every media outlet in New Zealand wants to um, wants to talk to you and wants to to give you um, give you time and tell your story and and uh, you know everyone over here knows what Bathurst is. I mean, everybody knows in this part of the world, Australia, New Zealand, and pretty much many other parts of the world that um, follow motorsport. They know what it is, and it and it's a big deal. I mean that. Uh, that prize title is, is something that, um, you know, so many people aspire to, uh, not many get the, you know, uh, get the chance or, or get, get to hold that trophy or have that trophy. Um, so, you know, it, it, was, it was massive. And, and I, I vividly recall, you know, the, the phone, you know, lighting up afterwards and and people wanting to talk to you and, 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 you know, give you that that time um, in, in, you know, in the papers, on the television, all that kind of stuff. And and also, as you said, you know, I think it, it definitely then gave me this, um, the chance to be trusted with, um, you know, the the car coming over to New Zealand and doing that event as well alongside Brock and, and doing the the Mobile Series uh, uh, back in 96 then. And, and then subsequently... Uh, with Lounsey buggering off overseas, you know, all of a sudden I find myself the factory driver alongside Peter in, 90, in 1997. Was it that weekend in New Zealand where you actually did the deal for the next year? Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. It was actually Saturday afternoon um, uh, in the, the hotel uh, there in Wellington. Um, John Crennan sat me down and we went through a bit of a plan and, and, and that's, that's pretty much where it was done. And, and uh, looking back on it now, it was like, oh my god, he could have—he could have said, "I'm gonna—I'm not gonna pay you," and I probably still would have signed, you know. And uh, <laughs> I know exactly what the money was back then, and and it, it was not a lot. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I didn't have a manager or anything. I was—I didn't even have—I didn't even uh, have time to talk to Kev about it. I just—it was just like, uh, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. he's signed—sign <laughs> on the dotted line. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars, unforgettable.
0: I wanted to touch on Wellington because there was such an amazing history of the street race. And it's a nice little segue because there's a new book on the Wellington street race and its history coming out uh, in the next couple of months, which, by the way, in our online bookshop, bookshop bookshop.vadsleuth.com.au, there's the plug. (laughs) uh, You can pre order it now. And it covers all of the years from 85 to 96 that the street race was run with the, the Nissan Mobile 500s, the World Touring Car Championship, the, the two liter races that were held, and then ultimately that last um, event in 96, which by that stage, the track had been shortened quite a bit. And, uh, and, and because we're on this side of the ditch, we don't see what's happened. But I, am I right in saying, Murph, that the, the, the old track as it was is no longer able to be used because there's been development and, and building there and a lot of it's gone?
1: Yeah, that's right. And and, and in ninety six it was it was quite different too to what it was previously. So it was ninety three was the last uh consecutive event, wasn't it? And then um, there was a gap.
0: Oh, no, ninety two was the last year of the two yeah
1: the, cars? yeah that's right and then 93 yeah. was was a bit of a mix mixed bag kind of event yep. uh, there was some super tourers there and there was um, Porsches and all sorts of different things and right. then there was the gap until 96 so the track the track had changed quite a lot even for 1996 and um, there was a fair bit of development going on and then um, uh, yeah so and now it, it's unrecognizable pretty much of, of what it
0: uh, of its former self with the amount of development that has happened there. We mentioned um, that late part of 96 and winning Bathurst. Now, I've got a theory that the young guns who win Bathurst these days don't know how to celebrate it or party. I went to enough of those <laughs> leagues club and um, pub parties on the Sunday night. I've stumbled out of Panthers at 4 a.m. I know exactly the deal in my younger days and there's the famous photos of and Lowndes still hung over at the track doing your photo shoot with the winning car the next day. Do you agree that the supercar stars of today cannot party like the supercar stars of the nineties?
1: Oh my god, that's that, that's going to start open a can of worms, isn't it? Um, I think they probably party in a different way uh, than what we did back then. I think what happens on Sunday night after Bathurst is 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 very very different to what it used to be. I mean, those days, mate, yes, they were they were special. I mean, the, the event, and and you've got to remember though too that. Um, that was the end of the season, pretty much. I mean, ninety six was a little different because we did ship ourselves off to New Zealand for a couple of race meetings. But you know, the, uh, back in the nineties, there. Um, when did we? When did the championship I- extend past Bathurst?
0: Was it ninety? 90- uh, was the last round in ninety nine when you won? And in two thousand, was because it was in November. Still remember? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And in oh one, it went back to October, and then we added Pukakoi. And yep. stand down finale. So yeah, oh one, it's been about twenty years since it. So been- we,
1: I mean, so was the end of the season, you know. Yeah. And so it was, it was just like everyone just unleashed, unleashed fury, <laughs> and um, and then wasn't worried about Monday morning because the cars didn't need to be rushed back to the workshop to be uh, rebuilt for another event. So yes, it was, it was good times, and the uh, the old uh, Bathurst RSL was um, was the go to venue, and um, it didn't shut the doors. It it didn't close it. Whatever time it closes now or midnight, it um, pretty much stayed <laughs> open until the last person managed to slither themselves out the door. So yeah, it, was, it you know, and it's a bit of a shame, but um, the championship has obviously expanded and changed so much. And I think um, I think the young the young well, young boys still uh, know how to have a good time. I think it involves some um, sort of uh, apps on their phones
0: though as well, and, which we didn't <laughs> have back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Probably safer that you didn't. Hey. Um, there's a chance, a red hot chance this year, though, as we record this. Things are, are changing quickly, and by the second, plans can change in the current world. But if Bathurst is the last round this year, ho oh, oh, ho oh, the modern era boys might be on it. That could be it. I and mean, then there might need to be some special planning, I would
1: imagine, uh, around that to get some sort of uh, deal going. And, and you know, if it is the last round, I mean, uh, you can sort of see the potential for maybe uh, there won't, I, I doubt. No doubt there's going to be plans for a big galah dinner, so maybe, uh, maybe it is a, a decent celebration at the end of, end of it all and we might see some uh, resurrection of,
0: of, the old, uh, of the old days. Inject a little bit of uh, financials into the Bathurst economy on the, the Sunday evening. We touched on that New Zealand street race in, in 96 and I watched the tape again the other day just to refresh my, my memory <laughs> on that and and, and literally, I think it is a tape. <laughs> was, it, was it a videotape? Because that's all I've got of it. Yeah, it was. An actual it, videotape. It was VHS converted to DVD, converted to digital. So it's been through a go. couple of, uh, of evolutions. But I don't think people in Australia understand how big that event was. And And I touched on it before, but... Was, for those who don't remember, there was a, a, a three-race sprint format. There were 12 cars taken across the ditch, um, as you mentioned, yourself and, and PB and the HRT cars, two Wayne Gardner cars, two Dick Johnson cars, two Pastoral Perkins, Glenn Seton, Tony Longhurst, and the two Alan Jones cars that had been pack leader, but they were for AJ and Paul Radisic, who was making a bit of a V8 return for the weekend. And then the next weekend was another three at, at Wellington. So... You cleaned them up at Pookie in one or three. And then at Wellington, though, it didn't go as smoothly and JB ended up winning on points. But you won the last race, won the series, and probably um, got the, the main headlines and the plaudits. But just can you explain to the listeners how big that event was for you? How big was it for New Zealand Motorsports? Probably the likes of which we haven't seen since then.
1: Yeah. Just nuts. So I mean, it, I mean, in comparison, I suppose uh, when we came as part of the championship in two thousand and one for the first time, you know, uh, at Pukakoe, um I mean, the crowd there was bigger. Uh, the, you know, we've had bigger crowds at Pukekohe just because of the access a- access to the joint. Um, and and but I hadn't. Yeah, uh, I mean, Bathurst was Bathurst, but to come back to New Zealand come to that Wellington event and the Pukekohe event as well the week before, which, again, was just off-scale huge as, as far as people, um, you know, for 12 cars as well. As you say, it, was, it wasn't, wasn't like it was a full field, but for 12 cars, the, the crowd that turned out uh, for it was just off-scale, off, just off it was nuts, completely nuts. You know, the biggest, biggest crowd I've ever seen uh, to the point in New Zealand. And then Wellington the following weekend, yeah, they, they just flooded the joint. They were hanging out of um, car parking buildings, out of, um, you know, uh, office buildings, every single vantage point. I mean, you you just wouldn't get away with anything like it anymore. I mean, part of where the racetrack was, there's a park um, in the center and which was an uh, ongoing development and, and there was no railings or anything. There was just people sitting on the, on this concrete structures and stuff on the edge. They're hanging over the edges. There wasn't even any fencing or anything like that. It was, it was just crazy. And you know, it, it was yeah, the, the shiver down the spine um, all weekend, but you're right. The, the Wellington event didn't quite go to plan. I actually stuck the thing in the fence on uh, Saturday. Um, and did a fair bit of damage to the back end of of my uh, number one car, um, and we had to do a bit of a resurrection job, and and then and then qualifying yeah, um, uh, wasn't wasn't so good. I think I qualified sixth, and uh, only made um, sort of slow progress in the first couple of races, and then the last race, you know, our, the the Bridgestone shod HRT cars were pretty good. Um, obviously weapons, uh, Landsy had uh, cleaned up the championship. We'd won the stand down, won Bathurst and, and then gone to New Zealand. So expectation of the car was pretty good. Um, you know, the, the other Bridgestone cars Glenn was, was clear, clearly, pretty quirk. And, and Paul Radisich was on, on fire that weekend as well. So we had some, some pretty uh, incredible dices. Um, but, you know, it was, it is incredibly memorable because uh, again, flowing on from the success at Bathurst and getting that recognition as a race car driver and a Kiwi driver to then end up in New Zealand, you know, uh, for, for those events was, yeah, it was, it was just a mega time and, um, you know, I, I had to
0: keep pinching myself that it was actually real. It's scary to believe that next year's 25 years. Since that happened here. I think you've got a yapping little friend in the background there. I've got my yapping
1: dog out there who's driving me a little bit mad what, at the moment. What's your man.
0: dog's name? Our listeners want to know. We love pooches.
1: Yeah, right. Um, his name is Spud. Spud. Oh, original. Spud Murphy. <laughs> um, and, and that's actually, that was actually um, uh, for, for Larko. because uh,
0: he's the only person I've ever heard
1: call you Spud. That's right, so Larco calls me Spud and um, so when we got uh, this one he's sort of a, a, a light brown colour so um, he got uh, he got uh, termed with that one and and, and, and uh, yeah, so he's a cross between a lab and something we don't quite know what he is but he's a, he's a rescue dog and yeah. we've had him for about um, oh, since, when did we get him? May last year, so whatever that is it's 15, 16 months
0: yeah, good. We like, we like our dogs here on the BSL podcast. Uh, I have a chocolate Labrador who's dug up my backyard, which is great, in a Melbourne winter under lockdown. So at least we got to watch it. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. But I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and you might recognise their logo. Did you know that Timken bearings are used in the centerpiece of one of the most stunning stadiums in the world of sport? The $2 billion, yes, billion dollar Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta features a retractable roof that is a work of incredible engineering. It features eight triangular roof panels, or pedals as the designers call them, that slide open and close in the same way that a camera shutter does. Each pedal weighs almost 500 metric tons. and. When the roof is closed, each petal cantilevers over 60 metres from the outer edge of the stadium. Now, despite the weight, the size, and the complexity of the design, the roof can be closed in just over seven minutes and open in just over eight, with Timken's tapered roller bearings used to ensure each petal moves smoothly. The stadium's home to the Atlanta Falcons NFL team and the Atlanta United Major League Soccer team. And in 2019, it hosted the crown jewel of American football, the Super Bowl. We'll bring you more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast through the course of the year. Now, it's back to the podcast. We talk about Wellington. Everyone knows you as a Holden hero. You've driven every round of, of supercars that you've ever been in in a, in a Commodore. Um, but there's a little dirty, little dirty part of your history that the Holden fans either don't know or choose to forget. Tell me about the Peanut Slab Sierra and driving the the, 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 the Nissan Mobile races because I'm imagining a Group A Sierra on the streets of Wellington by that stage when they were really far along the line was a bit of a light switch and uh, a bit of a baptism of fire for a young open-wheeler kid.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, it was. Um, And uh, Mark Pitch was the owner of the slab. Um, And my association sort of... Uh, came around due to uh, connection through um, uh, my sponsorship with Shell, Shell Oil back in the day. Um, I'd won the scholarship in 1990, and then subsequently from that point on, they'd continued to give me a bit of a helping hand. And uh, we basically, Mark Pitch came to me and said, Oh, you know, listen, what's your, what's your plans moving forward? And we had a, a chat about it. And all he said, Well, you know, we've Uh, pretty, pretty keen to have you on board for the Nissan mobile series coming up, um, to drive with Kane Scott, um, heading into the, you know, there was the 1992 series and I was like, Oh my goodness gracious. I think the, probably the, what did I driven before that? Touring car was, um, at the racing school that I was working at in in um, uh, at Manfield. Uh, Richard Lester had a, an old Roadways Group A Commodore. Um, oh, so, okay. yeah, which was a genuine car. Um, and that was, I can't remember who owned it, but it was there and we used to do a few. Was that one of those, days. maybe the Sleepyhead car or the Can Am car or one of those Kiwi yeah, th- Roadways? Actually, now you mentioned it could have been the Can Am car, to be honest, um, from memory. I, it's, yeah, that's actually stuff that uh, you've now I've brought it up and now I'm trying to remember it all to be honest, but it was, um, we used to do a bit of school driving with it, um, at uh, Manfield. And I think that was probably, probably the, you know, that was the most, the biggest, wildest sort of touring car that I'd driven and I hadn't spent a lot of time in it, but, um, anyway, that was, it was a bit of fun. Um, so then, you know, driving a Sarah Cosworth though was, was a whole different ball game. And I, I, before I, uh, got to drive in and practice at, at, um, at Wellington, um, I, the only laps I did was around Manfield running in the engine, in the wet. So <laughs> it was a terrible um, two day and I got to do a few laps in the car and then off to Wellington. So uh, that was my preparation and subsequently uh, we got there and, and, I mean, it was, oh, wow, an eye opener, such an eye opener. Because the thing was heavy as all hell, no power steering, um, five-speed box that was in that one. And, and they were, they were, they were a little bit like light switches back in the day. And, um, we had to wrangle this thing around, around the track, but again, just a huge experience. And, and, you know, I, I, I just absolutely, you know, couldn't believe that I was there racing on that racetrack against some of the people that were there racing um, some of my obviously heroes, and um, and having a crack, and, and 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 it worked out pretty good. We um, Kane and I finished uh, fourth at uh, at Wellington, and we finished fourth at Pukekohe the next week. Um, I think we and we ended up second overall for that series that year.
0: Did you get a bit of time on the track with a certain bloke in zero five and have a little fanboy moment? Of course, yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, and the
1: thing is, back then I can remember vividly. You know, um, Brock was just. So Brock, typical Brock, you know, it's just like have a chat. He's like treated you like he'd known you for twenty years, and was and you were like uh, 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 Peter, Peter, Peter Brock. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty funny, pretty funny stuff.
0: When uh, when the oh, there's 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 heaps of V8 chat and, and Phoebe chat we could have we could talk all day about it, but when the first lockdown happened in New Zealand earlier in the year, you were sharing a lot of great photos from your career and where you've been over your, your time in motorsport. And, and one of the ones that I think is pretty cool that probably you haven't talked about much because we get so focused on the V8 stuff and the tin top stuff was your pathway to trying to go to the States and, and do some stuff in, in Indy cars and Indie lights. And you ended up, you put up a photo not long ago of your, your Indy car test. I think it was at Putnam Park from memory in in the U S in 97 when you were at HRT and there's a bloke who was testing the same day. I think you were there to do Indy Lights though, weren't you? But right. they wheeled out an Indy car and said, hey, how about this? So that was a total shock and they didn't send you an invoice for it.
1: No. So it was a bit of a surprise. So, um, you know, the, the project, uh, I think it was called Project Indy, was the name of the team. And they were a bit of a fledgling sort of uh, organisation, you know, trying to, you know, find that, um, that person to come along with the big money and get them going and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and they they had this Indy Lights car um, and it wasn't currently being run, um, and so it is a very long story. So I'm going to try and keep it short. But we ended up um, through some of the people that were trying to help me out, we put together this test um, over there, and we went and 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 had two days of testing in this this car. Um, and it was one of those situations where you know I think the team owner of of the the of the indie car. Um, sort of was like, okay, so it's a money-making opportunity here to get some money for this test and, and didn't really think much of it. And uh, the car turned up out the track and, and and they also had the Indy car there and the transporter um, and they were going to be doing some testing. I don't know when. It hadn't actually been run um, before I did my test or during, I, during my test with the Indy Lights car, but they had pulled it out and I think maybe they were going to be doing some testing. Anyway, our our Indy Lights test had gone gone really well and, you know, I'd done a fair few number of laps and the guy that owned the car had said, hey, um, you know, if you guys, he'd been watching the times and so it was like, oh, that's Ego, right? He said, well, you know, and then he was obviously thinking, well, here's an opportunity. Don't really know who these guys are, but if if this kid's any good, you know, maybe there's uh, something we can be doing and maybe there's a chance that he could end up in an Indy car. And so what he did, was say if you if you call quits on the test with the Indy Lights car and save putting more miles on it, um, you know you can maybe do a few laps in the Indy car. I was like, well, that's that doesn't take a lot of thinking about, not a lot of time of thinking, and so we did that. And um, so I strapped into the uh, the the Lola and and um, and off we off we went. My bloody dog, he is driving me <laughs> mad. Um, uh, we went and did a few laps. Unfortunately, it did have a bit of a, a misfire going on. So I didn't get uh, as many clean laps as I would have liked to have got. But it was my only experience aboard a, uh, a fully fledged IndyCar, um, which at the time, I remember going, this is where I want to be. And this is what I want to be doing. There's no doubt about it unfortunately well fortunately unfortunately um you know it didn't uh, it didn't progress down the path but we did try to actually do a deal with the guy who owned owned that that team for the next year or so we there was a fair bit of effort and work put into trying to raise the money and a lot of ideas um were, were put forth to try and put
0: the budget together to actually uh, do a deal what sort of bucks did you you need to do that back then
1: well, the Indy Lights deal was, um, for a start, was was around the sort of eight, nine hundred thousand US dollars at the time, which which now comparatively is quite cheap. Mm. Um, but uh, that was a lot of dough. And I think, you know, for the for the IndyCar side of things, um, you know, I think it was still, it was, I think it was like a four million dollar kind of
0: deal back then in, in the late 90s to try and do something then. Who was – you said about the people who were helping you and, and working with you. I presume Pete was part of that, but who else was involved behind the scenes in trying to trying to facilitate that and, and get you into that opportunity?
1: Yeah, there's um, some of uh, the local Kiwi guys here. A guy named Alan Stewart was actually supporting me uh, as well at the time um, trying to work through plans uh, to make that happen, there was a guy named Gray Mathias, Gray Mathias as well, who's who's um, also helps out uh, Fabian Coulthard a fair bit. He was involved, obviously my father, um, and then there were some guys on the US side as well uh, that we'd met that was uh, was also trying to to give us a helping hand. But you know, it, it's just those challenges of of motorsport and you know trying to do it. And, and the catch for me was. Um, and I was in a pretty, you know, fortuitous position as I, I, you know, as you as you said, it was 1997. I was um, still driving uh, full time for the Holden Racing Team at the time. So, you know, there was some some great people um, back in Australia that were supportive of it as well. The team was supportive of it, um, you know, trying to make it happen. Um, but you know, the complexities of it all, and 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 then you know, not being able to. Um, you know, fully get that deal together. I was very lucky that on the other side, on the flip side, supercars was going pretty good and, and the growth of the sport was good and and there was opportunities on the table to, you know, cement myself and, and that side of it. Now, there's no real regrets because I gave it a shot. Maybe we could have done things different, better, who knows. But, um, you know, it's, it, just it got to a point where I had to make a decision. Do I go and become a paid driver in Australia and, and really build that or continue to search for, you know, the, uh, the millions to go and and
0: do the, uh, do the American dream. Make money, spend money. Mm, I like making money. It's always a, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, but I, you know, um, it it would have I would have loved to have been able to not earn money for a little while, but get the chance to actually try and prove yourself in that in that class in, in IndyCar. And you know, I just look at what Scott Dixon's managed to achieve, and, and you know, what a brilliant career. And and you know, and and uh, to be honest, you know, there's a little bit of envy because you know I, I would have loved to have had a chance. I mean, those cars were just sensational, and I love single seaters, and I loved the uh, the fact that um, IndyCar. You know, was was such a complex series with short ovals, long ovals, road courses, permanent circuits, all that kind of stuff. It was just such a great championship. Obviously,
0: it went through some tough times there for a while too. Yeah, it was a great era, wasn't it? Because that's when the manufacturers were going yep. nuts with Ford and Honda and Toyota and uh, yep. Lola and Reynard and big ticket sponsors and uh, Mercedes-Benz, obviously through Elmore. So yeah, big big money. Big stuff, and of course, at the time um, was during the split when CART didn't have the Indy Five Hundred, and it still was was booming and strong. But we could do a whole another uh, Indy Car podcast about all that stuff. I want to talk a bit more about the international stuff because it's probably something like I said before that gets overlooked. So there was a a little period there where there was a sniff and a potential of a British touring car seat with Williams and with Renault in the the factory program there. So that's late '98. So the HRT stuff had ended. Before we get on to that though, how did you find out that you're out of HRT in your gig? Did you get a a phone call from Creno or how did that all go down? Yep. Yep. Uh, That's exactly uh, what happened. And I was a bit naive, you know,
1: Um, but also um, naive about the whole thing. And, and, but I was also pretty distracted at the time, you know, trying to uh, chase that, that whole American thing. And, And, um, and I sort of, I wasn't playing the game and, and as, as anywhere near as well as I should have been, I didn't really have anyone representing me or anything like that. So, so, you know, I, I sort of, I was angry at the time that I'd, um, I've been given the boot or, you know, not, um, didn't have a seat, but you look back on it, it was like, was, it was pretty, pretty obvious and, and easy to understand with Brock leaving, you know, I suppose I just assumed that um, they were going to sit and wait for me to make my decision on what I, what the hell I was doing, and and I would be there alongside um, Lounsey. But uh, you know, obviously Scafie, um was looking for a drive, and subsequently, you know, uh, went on to do amazing things at HRT. But um, you know, I was still, you know, had fingers and pies all over the place trying to to work out um, my next next move, and. and and then I missed out on HRT or didn't have a drive there, and all of a sudden I was I was all pissed off because um, you know that was gone. But it was like, well, I sort of sort of created the situation for myself. But yeah, Crenno ran and gave me a call, and then and then obviously from that point as well um,
0: offered uh, offered an enduro drive um, for for the following year. So that following year, you did the endurance races with HRT with Mark Noski, but late in the year. You did the two-litre Bathurst with Triple Eight in the victory, which I want to touch on because it's a bit of an overlooked Bathurst assault from your career. But then this opportunity to, to test and potentially get in the frame with Renault, who I think uh, Menu was leaving from memory to go to Ford for the, for the following year off the top of my head. But there was a seat there, wasn't there? Yeah. Um, yep. How did that whole thing start and it was on and it was off and you're coming, you're not coming, it's on? Where, where did that all start and how did it all flow? actually graham moore
1: um from sydney who who spent a bit of time uh doing super touring all sorts of other racing as well uh from um uh, north sydney there he he was the guy because i got to know graham um through uh through the years at super touring and and um he was mate he also knew peter addison really well and and he he was actually someone that actually really worked quite hard to um help me get a shot there and i think um he also used Alan Jones um, because of his connections at Williams and, and knowledge there to to get me at least me get a uh, get me a test um, over there and and so that all sort of came together and it was a real busy time um, because I was doing stuff in New Zealand we're doing some um, Formula Holden single seater stuff um, there was uh, again testing I was doing in uh, in America with Tasman with uh, Steve Horn at the time as well around there. Uh, Scott Dixon and I were both flying backwards and forwards all over the place at the time. He was going off to do testing as well. Um, uh, And so it was, it was a crazy end to 1998 with Enduros with HRT, um, uh, the Formula Holden stuff, Tasman kind of series stuff back in New Zealand. Um, uh, The, Tasman and lights testing and that uh, was which was again was another opportunity. And then also this test with with Renault, Williams Reno at Nagaro in France, um, which was in the middle of winter over there. And so it was just a crazy time, and I yeah I ended up uh, getting shipped off over there. Jason Plato was the um, the other driver, and, and he was he was there at the test, very helpful. But it was it was miserable, absolutely miserable. And I, I all I can as far as weather and everything goes, it was freezing cold in Nagara and um, and I remember getting there and this, the, here's this racetrack and um, trying to get some laps in this thing, and again, front wheel drive um, tire temp, all that kind of stuff, really, really tricky, and uh, a car I'd never driven before, a track I'd never been before, and, and it was, it was all just, and I think I had a bit of jet lag, all sorts of bloody rubbish going on, but it was still a, a an incredible experience, and, and we got through the test, and all I remember is about that track, is if we think, uh, Sydney Motorsport Park's got high tire dig, I reckon there was, there was half a lap. You got half a lap on a brand new set of Michelins around uh, Nagaro before they went off. It was, it was just unbelievable. And I just couldn't, I, I don't think I could get my head around it. Um, but um, the test was the test. I don't, I don't, from memory, believe it went overly well. Um, I then jumped on a plane and flew back to uh, England and um, was basically going to meet Frank Williams um, to discuss um, you know, an opportunity potentially with with the t- with the race team, and uh, I remember going out to Williams and, and Oxford, and um, uh, he was obviously a very busy man, Frank Williams. And I was actually sitting there at the at Williams HQ for quite a long time, waiting for him to turn up, and um, eventually ended up uh, in his office. and uh, The meeting was was reasonably short and quick, and I, the, the thing the thing I remember most about sitting there being talked to by Frank was. At the end of it all, he said, um, "So, how much, how much uh, would you expect to be getting paid by us if you if you were given the drive?" <laughs> I was like, "That is out of left field. That is so out of left field." And I I think I, I um um uh did not expect to be asked what I should be getting paid um, if if he was going to employ me to um to drive uh drive his his racing car for the for the 1999 British Touring Car Championship. I can't even remember what I said. I mean, anyway, I didn't get a second interview, so it um that it was the wrong answer. <laughs> it must have been the wrong answer, but I, don't, I, I I couldn't even tell you what it was. I think I think I said oh, um, something along the lines of maybe what I was what I was getting, what I was getting paid in Australia or something like that. I don't know. Maybe maybe I undersold myself so much he thought no there's no
0: way we're hiring this bloke. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But that was an experience. That was 98, yeah, full on. So the Renault test in 98 wasn't your only two-litre expedition that year. And everyone forgets that you drove at Bathurst for triple eight in a Holden, but it was, well, it was in a two-litre Vectra and in the race yep. that always overlooked in history because everyone remembers the V8 race.
1: Yeah, it was only half the cylinders in the in the engine. That's right. Um, that's right. Yeah, it, that all came about um, obviously uh, being part of the the Holden fold and and John Stevenson, motorsport manager at the time, um, uh, yeah, kindly I think uh, shoved me and Russell into that that uh, that seat and um, yeah, it was it was amazing. It was it was great fun. We had so much fun in that car and and um, they were they were pacey around. Around Mount Panorama, and uh, yeah, it all went it went pretty well, and and ended up being you know provisional pole on Friday afternoon in the car as well, and um, before getting absolutely stomped by um, Ricard Rydell the next day in the top ten shootout. But um, yeah, it was it was it was good fun, and, and Russ unfortunately got caught out on someone else who had dumped a whole bunch of oil at the to uh, just going into Skyline and arrived there you know with unsighted. Uh, oil all over the track and ended up, but he the thing in the fence. Unfortunately, I think it was a write-off that car after that because it was a pretty big hit with he and. Uh... Well, I think it was also the end of end of the era for that car. Um, I think I remember uh, Roland saying about how you know the, the amount of money that had been invested. that you know BTC was a bit out of control at that stage with the manufacturers and how much money those cars were costing uh, to build. And I, um, I'm pretty sure it was it was as um, sort of last run. Uh, not that he wanted it written off, but
0: um, I, I think they had uh, new cars for 99. Well, they definitely needed a new one to replace yeah. that one because it was about a foot shorter than when it arrived uh, at Mount Panorama in 98. But you did a bit of other stuff along the way. When we stop and think about it, you have driven a lot of different cars and had a crack at a lot of different stuff. And, and one of the ones that um, is really forgotten, but you did it here in our backyard, was when Murph went NASCAR racing and spent all night dropping Days of Thunder Lines on the radio to his crew. How did you get roped into doing a NASCAR race or two?
1: Oh, my goodness. Uh, Scott Williams, um, uh, the great man um, who was uh, involved with uh, our great mate, uh, Kevin Schwantz, and putting that whole deal together and, and – Oh, man, I don't even know. I can't kind of remember how I got introduced to all those guys and, and bits and pieces. But I, I think actually, I think Scott might have actually just rung me out of the blue, I got my number and, and just offered it up because, you know, uh, it was 98, wasn't it? Yeah, I think and, so, yeah, And again, I was sort of uh, in, in, the, in the middle of things and, and not really sure what was going on, sort of only part-time, obviously, with the uh, endurance side of things with HRT and tripping around all over the world trying to put other deals together. And so, um, you know, I think I just got a bit of a phone call out of the blue and, and, uh, how about you come and give this a crack? And I was like, yeah, that's, that's left field stuff. But it was intriguing because, you know, the Thunderdome was, was a a pretty big thing back in, back in the day. And, and, you know, it was getting decent coverage, um, as far as recognition for, for what was going on out there, the OzCars and the NAScars, and it was, it was, it was pretty full-on. And so it was like, oh, you know, why not jump in and have a crack? How hard can it be? Well, stupid thing to say. It was very hard. <laughs> and you learned. <laughs> I learned, unfortunately, um, in the uh, non-cost-effective way, yes. why well, did you bend it? Yeah. Oh, I forgot that bit. I bend it. You did not forget that but You'll have photos of it somewhere of me smoking the thing, the old Monte Carlo up against the fence. Um, my cl- one of, I think probably my biggest claim to fame, though, was that was at um, the Adelaide International Raceway on the tiny little oval. Um, I put Jim Richards in the fence. Did you really? You naughty boy. I know. Deliberate? It wasn't, a, wasn't my proudest moment. It was not my proudest moment. Deliberately? No, of course not. Oh, I not. to say. Gentleman yeah. greg
0: <laughs> so that's part one of our chat with greg murphy on the v8 sleuth podcast powered by tim can we covered so much ground in part one the good news is that there is still so much ground left to cover in part two and in that we talk about a bunch of stuff we talk about the spider-man kmart bathys commodore we talk about the famous press conference that same year in 2004 uh, on the Gold Coast, where he and Marcus Ambrose teed off in front of the pack of media, who I don't think got too many questions in that day either. Uh, The National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions. We got so many of those questions from you, the fans. We launched those at Murph, and he also tackles the motor uh, Motor Focus, I should say, top 10 shootout. Sign up of course to our V8 Sleuth website. We've got a newsletter that keeps you abreast of all of our new products and news on the site so jump on the V8sleuth.com.au website and subscribe to that. Follow us on socials and all the cool things that we do. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know where to find us. In the meantime though I uh, hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast part 2 of Greg Murphy's uh, just on the other side of this if you click down the line. Uh, in the meantime, that's the V8sleuth podcast powered by Tim and we'll see you in part 2 of Greg Murphy. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rejo to oil tool. Simply type in your Joe, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Reggio, the number 2, and oil and find out.